Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming AF events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. This week features my conversation with Jeff Mena, best known as the author of Building Blog. Focused on architectural conjecture, urban speculation, and landscape futures, for the past 16 years, Building Blog has covered architecture in its broadest spectrum, roaming far beyond the subject of buildings to frame a conversation about the built environment that encompasses nearly everything. A typical Building Blog post might cover topics ranging from Greek myths to satellite imaging, or Gothic horror to artificial glaciers, Ghostbusters, bunker archaeology, 19th century ruin paintings, or the films of Alfred Hitchcock. From Mano's view, nearly any subject can be investigated for its architectural significance. Last month, my teaching partner Simon Henley and I took our students from the Kingston School of Art on a field trip to Los Angeles, and we were lucky enough to meet with Maynard while there. The interview was recorded at the office of LA architect Michael Monson, where Maynard and I talked about, among other things, what led him to begin writing about architecture on his own terms, the perverse enthusiasms for overlooked spaces he shares with the late science fiction writer J.G. Ballard, and the value of expanding an architectural discourse beyond the limits of academia. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So Jeff writes a blog called Building Blog and has done for the past 14 years? Uh, 16. 16 years. Yeah. And obviously the form through which we consume architectural media has changed in the interim. But in 2004, um, this is kind of at the beginning of, of blogging, essentially. Or your blog was one of the first architecture blogs, at least I became aware of as a student. Yeah, I think I'd, I guess I'd say that in 2004, architecture blogging hadn't really taken off yet. There were there were a couple, um, in particular, John Hill had a blog called A Daily Dose of Architecture, and um, he's still blogging, as far as I'm aware. Um, so, you know, the the dinosaurs are still out there, so to speak. Um, but I, but even when I started the thing in 2004, at the time, it really kind of felt like I had missed. I mean, blogging felt then, I think maybe the way podcasts feel now, which is that, you know, you kind of roll your eyes when you, when you hear that someone just started another podcast or you feel that they've kind of missed the boat or that that was a couple of years ago. Um, but so in 2004, you know, starting a blog was kind of like an embarrassing thing that you didn't really necessarily want to admit to. Um, in retrospect, obviously, that seems historically incorrect because it was it was right at the kind of explosion of um, in particular, architecture and design, you know, before design existed, um, other older blogs like Inhabitat were just, were just taking off. 
Um, but it was a really exciting ecosystem of, of writers and, and, and thinkers, I think in particular because it wasn't professional architects and designers that were really trying to articulate what they were interested in. Um, you know, it was younger, um, sometimes grad students, sometimes people who had, who had just left grad school. Um, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was people in their late teens and early 20s uh, or mid-20s that were just trying to find a community of people that wanted to talk about things and that they weren't, that weren't being addressed in an academic context and certainly weren't being addressed in a professional context. You know, you weren't finding um, clients that wanted to talk about these things with you or um, commission people to design these kinds of things. And so I think that by way of a long-winded answer, but also to give some context to what interested me in writing about architecture at the time, um, was that it was exactly those kinds of things that weren't popping up in the press. So uh, things that we now kind of take for granted that you can pick up an architecture magazine and it will have articles about science fiction films or have articles about advanced new um, visualization technology that can be used in archaeology or design, um, you know, uh, critiques of, of, uh, of uh, architecture as represented in, in popular fiction or, or even song lyrics. Um, you see a lot of that now, but it was definitely out of... Uh, it was underrepresented dramatically at the time. And so to find other people out there through the internet that were also into this, I think was just a really exciting thing mm -hmm. to realize that you actually had colleagues and friends and, you know, friends, I guess, in the American sense, but that you had uh, colleagues that you could, you, or acquaintances that you could share ideas with online. It was, it was very exciting. And it was exciting um, for me too, frankly. And I think for a whole generation of architects or architecture students, mm. um, I mean, I wasn't even studying architecture at the time. I was studying English Lit but uh, was obsessed with architecture and was excited to find someone who wrote about ostensibly architecture, but actually everything but buildings. Um, so in that sense, it wasn't an architecture blog. Mm. It was um, a blog about fiction and speculation. It was a blog about the city, about infrastructure. It was a, a blog about technology um, in a really broad sense. And so whenever you went to building blog, you would, you would come across the strangest intersections of contemporary phenomena that form this kind of, as Jeff, you've described it before, a kind of Venn diagram of architecture, where architecture is at the center of all these other interests. You're kind of against a certain way of thinking about architecture, and you're finding another way of, of kind of, of writing about architecture by writing about everything else. Sure. Um, and so I guess for me, um, and, and maybe a lot of people reading the blog at the time, what that meant was there was a certain permission granted on how you could think about the discipline um, and um, how you could intelligently interrogate it and not necessarily within an academic context. And so there's a certain amount of liberty there uh, in terms of the kind of language you could use, hmm. the ideas that were worth exploring, and essentially uh, what had value which uh, I think gave a whole generation of uh, academics and practitioners freedom to um, think outside of what had previously been understood as architecture culture. Um, so I just had to get that out of the way. <laughs> um, but what I'm interested in is the kind of impetus for starting the project back in 2004. And I've read that this kind of happened uh, you were recovering from abdominal surgery and you were auditing a course on archigram and um, were kind of down on things in general and then decided, <laughs> well, why don't you take it away from there? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's funny. I, I think I remember the, the interview where, where some of those details came from. 
Um, well, first of all, yeah, I mean, that's a very generous assessment of, of the, the state of blogging at the time, but um, in, your, in your previous remarks. But um, yeah, I guess I'd say that I was also coming at this from outside architecture. So I didn't study architecture. I studied anthropology and art history, but it was within those two disciplines that I was always drawn to, um, to the built environment, to the ways that architects might represent the history of a site through interesting and strange diagrams. Um, you know, I've always been interested in architecture in terms of how it's represented in, in, in film. I was obsessed with archaeology as a kid. You know, I always wanted to discover lost cities in the rainforest and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I grew up, you know, at the risk of revealing how old I am, you know, I grew up in the, in the heyday of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and that kind of thing. So that was a, uh, those sorts of um, fantasies of lost spaces and buildings hidden beneath, you know, inside mountains, et cetera, et cetera, was a, was a really enticing one. Um, but in any case, my point is that um, I really wanted to, you know, I'd always go to bookstores or libraries and go to the architecture section because I really wanted to read more about these kinds of things. Lost cities, uh, you know, things in, I've said it re repeatedly, but science fiction films or horror movies and the kinds of architecture you see. Um, but no one at the time was really writing about that kind of stuff. And so you'd go to the architecture section of a bookstore and it would just be, you know, giant glossy photographs of skyscrapers or, um, you know, opera houses I was never going to visit. Or I just, at least I'd never, I never thought I would, I would have the, the wherewithal to, to, to be able to see in person. So it was always these kinds of mega projects that were outside of my own personal experience. And so... Um, what I liked about blogging was that it was just this great way to say, well, fuck, man, I can just write about it myself. You know, I can just, you know, start this thing. It was free. It was hosted by Google. Like, there was no cost associated with it at all, um, which I also really love because if I woke up and I didn't blog or if I just abandoned it, I, it's not like I had sunk a bunch of money into, you know, buy, getting a logo designed or I was paying for hosting services. The whole thing was free, and so it just sort of felt like I can do anything I want with it and I can walk away at a moment's notice. Um, but so I just wanted to cover those things that I wasn't seeing covered and, um, and to bring those into the architectural conversation. And so in, in a sense, I might actually go back to a comment you said earlier where you, where you said that, you know, it wasn't really an architecture blog. Um, I guess I'd argue and say ex the exact opposite. Um, the thing that interests me is that when, when you hear that people describe themselves as, say, an architecture critic or they're studying architecture, I would actually say the opposite, that what they mean is that they critique buildings and they're studying buildings. Whereas if you really are writing about architecture, then that will include things like um, if you have vivid dreams about you know, how to, a, a building that you're trapped in um, or a subway system you can't figure out, um, if you have a, an ongoing phobia of being late for uh, to missing an airplane and thus can't find your way through an airport and that's like a, an anxiety of yours. Um, claustrophobia is, is an architectural phenomenon. I mean, you can really kind of start looking at things where that's architectural criticism. And so if you really are an architecture critic, um, you would be covering things far outside just buildings and just, you know, flying to San Francisco to see a new art, art gallery or, um, you know, or going to Sydney to check out a new, the, the new opening of some kind of, you know, uh, hoity-toity facility. Um, and so that's the other thing that just always interested me and still frustrates me, actually, to be honest. Like when people say that they're interested in architecture and, and they're really interested in buildings or they, or they wonder what in the world you're talking about when, um, you know, you... You, you say you write about architecture and then because the first question inevitably I'm, I'm asked is like oh what buildings should I see in Los Angeles or what's your favorite building and I have the most you know disappointing responses to both basically because I don't think about those questions very often um, but so in any case my, my point here is simply that the discipline of architecture is actually in my opinion or rather not even that the conceptual zone of architecture is huge um, is incredibly exciting and does lead into all of these other disciplines. I mean, it can get into um, medical uh, issues in terms of everything from like in, uh, indoor air quality to uh, diseases spreading, as you see through issues of like quarantine and the coronavirus. 
Um, it can get into uh, issues of social justice and, and politics in terms of things like prison design or in terms of obviously uh, redlining in, in different neighborhoods or, or um, you know, um, uh, unjust lending practices at banks and that kind of thing. Um, but so architecture is this amazing thing that sits at, at the center of all these Venn diagrams that, or, or rather at the center of a Venn diagram with all these things around it, like you mentioned earlier. Um, and I do wish that that kind of passion for it was, was more present in the discipline. Because um, when I go back to, um, speaking only for myself, um, you know, when, when I go into a lot of academic settings, it's, it's very much a very rigorous approach to, to buildings in particular, to particular lineages that led to certain formal languages and particular biographical um, lines of thought in terms of this architect and how he or she was influenced by this, this particular thing. Mm -hmm. But it needs more dreams and science fiction and horror, et cetera, to, to, to really live up to what I think the promise of architecture is. Maybe this is a point we could jump to. I think we're going a bit ahead of the chronology, but chronology doesn't really matter. So at some point, I don't know if it was in 2008, you were invited to teach at Columbia? Oh, it was 2010. Later than that. 2010. I think. Yeah, 2010. Um, and what I'm interested in hearing about is that experience of having come from a world of independent criticism mm -hmm. on your own terms and been absorbed into the world of academia. And like Columbia kind of epitomizes the, um, as do most universities, the ivory tower. Yeah. Um, and the architecture program there, um, as is the case with almost any architecture program I imagine, has a certain set of givens of what, what is valuable or what mm. is worthy, uh, both in terms of architecture and in terms of how we talk about architecture. Mm. And um, I'm just curious to hear what that experience was like for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess I'd say that it was certainly interesting to make that leap, uh, but I think a good, word to use, I think, would just simply be frustrating. And I think that was mutually, like it came in both directions. I think that um, my temperament is not particularly suited for academic, uh, rigorous academic inquiry. You know, I'm very bad at, I mean, I, I can do the kind of work that isn't required to build a bi good bibliography and find the right citations. Um, but as some of my answers have probably already indicated, I tend to find that kind of stuff stifling or boring, and, there's, and I want to find these other examples. Or if everyone is citing Walter Benjamin, I want to specifically not cite Walter Benjamin. I've, and I've just, that's just a, a personality quirk of mine, um, which means that I think that it can be frustrating for academic colleagues who think that either I don't, I'm not taking their work seriously, or I'm denigrating their research, or like I'm, I'm denigrating the value of a good bibliography. And I'm, I'm throwing in all these things that seem irrelevant, you know, almost like a, a kid with ADHD or that kind of thing. Um, and then it's frustrating from my point of view because it's the, the stuff that I like writing about is, is very much, or rather, I mean, at least at Columbia, was very much not taken seriously from an academic point of view. Um, you know, in retrospect, I think about it often, you know, because I mentioned earlier that I, don't, I did not study architecture. Um, and, uh, you know, a part of me thinks that some of the reason why some of my academic colleagues weren't hugely excited to see me in a position like that, although it was, you know, I, I was a, I don't even remember, it was a, adjunct associate professor or something. It was like, you know, take as many kind of diminutive words as you can and chain them up. And that, that's the kind of professor I was. You were running Studio X? Yeah. And then, so that was a couple of years after my okay. first, my first teaching gig there. Um, but I think there was a sense of like, who is this guy? And and he doesn't even, he doesn't even have a degree in architecture. So why on earth is he the person who's ahead of this, this of Studio X or teaching in this facility? Um, you know, whereas I think that that's what the Dean wanted to see happen, Mark Wigley at the time which was, hey, let's take somebody who is outside the system and give them the reins of, a, of an institution 
um, and see what they can do with it. Uh, and that's a great idea in, in the abstract, but I think that it has a lot of, a lot of friction in, 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 real, in the real world, in particular just from colleagues who think like, well, I know somebody at this school who's looking for a job exactly like that. Why didn't, like this person who's much more qualified than him, you know, why didn't this person uh, get to do that? Mm. But then on the other hand, I think, you know, as I've you know, mentioned, I think I've always had a kind of chip on my shoulder about academia, so it was kind of like an invitation I couldn't refuse. Uh -huh. um, and so I had, to, I had to do it just to sort of see what it, what it would be like. And then um, and, and I was there for about, I, I ran Studio X for about two years mm. and then went back to media. And, uh, so you were also um, editor for a period for Dwell? Or you were writing for Dwell? Yeah, yeah. Um, Wired UK is another, I mean, there's yeah, a I, think, I mean, my longest resume stuff is definitely in the, in the world of media. So yeah, I was, I was a senior editor at Dwell where ironically, like, you know, we covered houses and, and buildings and, and, you know, I got to write reviews of like, you know, suburban homes and some, and some houses here in the city and uh, here in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, at one point we commissioned someone to, to write a review of the, the individual who's now the mayor of, of Los Angeles, this guy named Eric Garcetti. And um, his home was like super green and sustainable. And, and so we, we featured that in, in Dwell. Um, but yeah, then that kind of spiraled into writing about tech and design and, and Wired UK and then working at Gizmodo. Right. Um, and then building blog has kind of always just like trundled along in the background, um, but more like a hobby. Like if there's something that you enjoy doing, whether it's like writing in a journal or, you know, some sort of athletic, uh, athletic activity, like building blog is that thing I do in the background as an outlet. Mm. And I mean, it seems like there's, there's this tension between the uh, b between the blog, which is like purely a pursuit of passion and what excites you and articulating that. Yeah. And then the kind of world of uh, architectural media and academia and how to translate what's happening with the blog into a different kind of professional practice. Yeah. And I mean, as of late, it seems like you've veered more towards journalism. And I know your partner, is also a journalist, Nicola, Nicola Twilley. Mm. Um, and I mean, I have the book, A Burglar's Guide to the City in front of me right now. And I wonder maybe if we could also veer off in that direction and talk about um, how building blogs set you up to become, in a sense, a kind of architectural journalist. Hmm, sure. Um, well, yeah, I guess I'd say that if you can kind of take some of the things that we've discussed already, some of those other themes from archaeology to sci-fi um, to, to burglary and crime, as, as you just indicated, um, you know, that sets up a whole field of things that one can write about and that one can research and explore. Um, and I do think that that's academically useful, despite my previous answer. Um, you know, my own temperament is, you know, means that I just sort of fly out of control when I have to really, really sit down and rigorously do something. Um, but if one does not have my temperament, you know, it's still very useful, I think, to find sources of influence and, and interest in all of these different fields that are outside the, the traditional sort of core known as architecture. Um, but what I think, I mean, Building Blog was good, or I, I suppose I shouldn't use it in the past tense, but Building Blog is good because it maintains a sense of like just having to be prolific and write. Um, so, you know, it's almost like gymnastics or yoga or that kind of thing. Like if you just do it often, like you're just, you, 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 can, you can sit down and do stuff, um, you know, you, you're, you're, I guess you're better at it over time. Um, so in other words, like I can produce articles and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's less difficult for me than it, than it used to be. Um, but it also meant that I got to meet people in different fields and, and started noticing other things that weren't being covered in architecture. 
Um, and then one of those things was the, specifically this notion that led to a book called A Burglar's Guide to the City that came out in 2016. Um, that really kind of came from some of my interests in, you know, I've mentioned film a few times, um, but I think the realization that, you know, I've always liked heist movies, movies that are about breaking into a building. I've always liked prison escape films that are about breaking out of a building. Um, and it seemed that nobody who was, at the time at least, was really writing about the, the architecture of those events. And that, you know, people often, you see this, you know, if there's like a London fest, uh, film fest of architecture or like the Los Angeles fil uh, architectural film fest, um, the movies that are screened are like documentaries about Frank Gehry or their interviews with the son of Frank Lloyd Wright or whoever it might be. Um, but I feel like the heist genre is such an unbelievably architectural genre that it seems like those are architectural films kind of par excellence. Like if you want to watch a movie about architecture, um, you know, take almost literally any heist movie where there's inevitably going to be a scene where people, you know, they, they gather around, they look at a floor plan of all things, you know, which in any other genre would just be, you know, like the, <laughs> the, the death of audience interest. But in that genre is like, the, is like is, is a key plot point. It's it suddenly becomes incredibly interesting how you get from this room to the next or how you get from this building to the, to the one next door. How do we cross this street without ever going outside? Um, you know, how do we get from one edge of the city to the other without you know, ever uh, you know, using certain roads or freeways? Um, are there other connections that exist that the police are unaware of or that the, the, that the architects who design these buildings are themselves unaware of? And so you get into fantasies of like air ducts. Um, you know, abandoned subway stations, uh, you know, water tunnels and all the kinds of stuff that exist out there and that are seen as almost like the dark matter of the built environment and yet are like central to the, to the, to the heist genre. And I could say the same thing about prison breaks. Um, but what and specifically interested me about, about, the, about this topic of, of, of inquiry was that the actual crime of burglary, um, at least in the, in the Anglo-American context, is specifically and only, it, it cannot exist without architecture. Um, so burglary is not the same thing as theft. So, for example, if you're a pickpocket and you bump into somebody on the street and you take their iPhone, um, that if you're, especially if you're out on the street, that's not an act of burglary. Um, and also, you can be a burglar without stealing anything. Um, there's actually a great category. Um, it's called surreptitious remaining. And so at the moment, we all have, I think at least, we all have permission to be here in Michael Maltzen's office. Um, <laughs> but at some point, when the office closes down and Maltzen and co. expect us to leave, if we were to stay surreptitiously remaining, um, technically speaking, we could be committing an act of burglary. Um, and so also burglary includes other crimes. So if I break into your house, but I'm intending to commit a different kind of crime, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be th uh, theft. Uh, but maybe I'm going to forge checks or I'm going to evade, I'm not going to pay my taxes, um, or I'm going to fire an unregistered uh, firearm. Um, that would constitute an act of burglary because I'm committing a crime inside an architectural setting that I don't have permission to be in. Um, so in any case, there's something that just seemed incredibly interesting to me, that there's an entire spatial category of cr criminal activity that exists because of architecture. And then on top of that, when you actually then look at uh, burglary and how it's committed, um, it's always, or not always, but it's very often an undercutting of what the architect expected. So, you know, when you study architecture, you assume the most basic things about a building, that the front door or a side door is maybe what you go through, um, that a window is for, from look, for looking into and out of, but not, going, not climbing through, um, that walls are meant to be taken as walls. But a burglar undercuts all of that. So, you know, you see it in films, but you see it in real life as well. You know, that maybe the, the fastest way to get into a hotel room that you're trying to break into, or maybe not the fastest, but the, the safest from the point of view of getting caught is not to go through the door at all, or not even to climb in through the window. It's just to take a drywall saw and just cut through and go from one hotel room to the next. Um, the same can be said for any number of different uh, strategies for getting into houses or banks. 
And I think it's that aspect of, of burglary that it's not only legally and literally connected to the existence of architecture, but the, the act of committing burglary often means that one is critiquing buildings and finding aspects of how a building was built and then using that against the building. So it's like finding a tactical weakness in the, in the, in the, in the structure of architecture. So there's this like dizzying encyclopedic knowledge that's spread out in front of us. And that always happens with the building blog post as well. And the question is always, but what about architecture? And it makes you realize that like questions of architecture are hiding in plain sight all the time. And it's, it's a matter of how, where you stand or how you see the discipline that can open up those questions for you. And I just want to read, I just want to read part of uh, the end of A Burglar's Guide to the City. Burglars have always played a role as a trickster or as trickster figures in the public imagination for millennia, always finding unexpected ways into locked spaces or devilish new uses for objects in our midst. And I think for me, you're kind of a burglar in the discipline of architecture and you're kind of breaking into what we might understand as the established mode of, of considering architecture or talking about architecture and uh, you're tampering with it. And uh, to me, it's so exciting. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself in those terms, but it's telling to me that uh, the, the draw you have to thinking about burglary and its relationship to architecture could also be understood um, as a kind of role that you're playing conceptually in the way you write about architecture as well. Sure, I mean, I don't, um, I guess I don't think of myself as like a burglar in, in, the, in the world of architecture in that sense, but I, I can see the comparison to um, a kind of cobbling together of different things from different places and um, using ideas from one field in another or just kind of mixing everything up so that you can find a way to discuss things from a more interesting point of, or what I think would be a more interesting point of view. Um, but I do think that yeah, that approach. I mean, it's it's a. I think it's a very useful approach as an as a journalist because it. You know, often I find speaking to fellow journalists. You know, they're. I, I have often met people who you know they don't know what they're going to write about next, or they or they they have they, they don't have an idea for their next article, um, or they don't know who to talk to, or they've been assigned something and it's about this idea, and they have no idea which experts to approach. Um, but for me, it's just unbelievably fun to think. Okay, well, hey, what about this with this kind of person? Like, would someone from this field be interesting to interview about this this idea here? And generally, I find. I mean, sometimes it's just bullshit. You know what I mean? You're just like kind of waving your hands and talking about stuff. But other times, it's actually genuinely interesting to get someone's opinion from from you know to talk about a, uh, to um, you know uh, the the helicopter pilots for the Los Angeles PD about urban design, which is one of the chapters in that book. Um, you know, and to, and to piece things together in a way that, that people might not be expecting. Um, so for me, it's just, it's just, uh, it's not only sort of like disciplinarily exciting, it's also just like, it's uh, as a, as a, as, as like a life style, you know, it's a, it's, it's more exciting to, to think that I can, um, yeah, meet the people that I have and, and talk to the people that I, that I, that I have over the, over the course of my career, you know, from architecture to, to policing, to criminals, to film directors, et cetera. So.
Um, I want to talk about science fiction now, and uh, in particular, J.G. Ballard. Okay. So, Ballard, I guess to an unfamiliar audience, um, writes a specific kind of science fiction, which to me is a kind of science fiction of the present. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's speculation about how people live now. It feels less about projecting into mm -hmm. some unknown future. Mm -hmm. And it's more about noticing the strangeness of life as we live it. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that Ballard has been a real um, influence on you and the way you think about architecture and writing about architecture. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if you could help unpack that for us. Uh, sure. Um, well, it's funny actually. That's a, that's a great example of 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 someone or something that um, back in two thousand four, two thousand five, when when I was starting Building Vlog, um, so few people were writing about Ballard that you know it felt like when you met other architecture people that were interested in in, in his novels, um, you know, it was genuinely exciting. Whereas now I kind of feel like you know, um, go to like any architecture school in, in the English speaking world and you'll find Ballard on one of the syllabuses. So it's kind of, it's kind of a funny thing that has, you know, he's really trickled into the architectural consciousness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as a writer, he really did, he did start off as a, as a kind of, you know, kind of a pure science fiction writer. So, you know, wrote about, you know, gigantic infinite cities of the future or about, um, you know, out of, out of control crystals spreading across the world and turning rainforests into geometric shapes. and. Um, you know, the sea levels rising and flooding, flooding all of the cities and people having to migrate north in order to survive. Um, but I think that something happened uh, around, uh, and I'm not a Ballard scholar, but I'd say like roughly around the time that he wrote his novel Crash, where, which is about people who get um, excited in a number of ways about car accidents. And so actually like institute, uh, create ideal car accidents. Um, needless to say, he's a controversial writer in certain, in certain fields. Um, but uh, was that it became this kind of like satirical interest in the present, as, 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 as you mentioned, Matthew. And um, what I think, some of that sort of weird uh, energy in his writing came from the fact that there were, you know, like scenarios that I think are, are too often dismissed as uninteresting that Ballard would actually find this perverse enthusiasm for. And so, you know, like a gated community on the outskirts of a corporate um, this is a center in the south of France, which... You know, if you take m most people, I think would find it kind of stultifyingly boring and, and would critique it as such. They'd complain about how bored they were and they wanted to leave. Ballard instead would write from the exact opposite point of view where the people there are almost um, perversely or even like psychotically ex ex excited about the environment that they found themselves in. And it's through that weird fixation on details that might otherwise be seen as very quick, very, uh, you know, we should dismiss these quickly and critique them. Um, he sort of reveals this parallel world that's, that's hiding in the details of the one that we inhabit, but it reveals that there's a different way of seeing that world and that there's a different way of being enthusiastic about it in a, in a way that verges on science fiction. Um, and so that's why I, th I think it is still accurate to say he's a science fiction writer, although I'd say that like the last 20 years of his works certainly was, was much more, I'd say, political and, and social than it was science fictional in any, in any straightforward sense. Um, and it was that aspect of it that I think was, yeah, just kind of comical for me that, you know, especially because I grew up in the suburbs of the U.S., um, you know, I had a totally normal middle class family and the kinds of things that, you know, my fellow, um, my friends and I, you know, used to spend our childhoods, you know, complaining about like, yeah, we have to get out of the suburbs, we have to get out of this place, like we have to find a, you know, a life of real authentic experience. Um, it was that world that I was trying to get away from that a lot of Ballard's novels are set in. 
and the people in those novels are having a life experience that was at least was as at least as authentically weird as the one I thought I would find if only I could move to Manhattan or you know disappear to Los Angeles. Um, and there was just something strange about that, and I really admired it, and still admire it actually, from the point of view of a writer, um, just to be able to take something that everyone expects you to dismiss and instead find the kind of, yeah, the perversity of it. There's something really exciting about that. But then also, sorry, just to go back to why this is relevant to architecture, um, so many of his novels are actually just explorations of architectural environments. Um, I think, you know, the most famous one probably in architecture circles is, is the one called High Rise, and, um, which is just very specifically about, you know, one of the earliest high-rise buildings, residential buildings constructed in London. It's a fictional building. Um, but it was set in a, in a world that, to a certain extent, was true to the time where people literally just didn't know what to make of that type of environment. It was seen as a psychologically and anthropologically novel space. You know, if you live in a building where you're 30 stories above someone um, and, and, you know, you get into uh, fights over who gets to use the fast elevator or, you know, who has access to certain stairwells, um, that was seen as a kind of like a novel architectural environment for that era. And Ballard just really takes it to the limit and shows, you know, middle class and upper class uh, Londoners, um, you know, resorting to, I don't think cannibalism actually happens, but I do know one of them eats a neighbor's dog. And uh, you know, there's mass murder and riots and all kinds of things happen inside this inside this building. Um, but the idea of saying, okay, sure, architects want to build this thing. Let's take that thing to its limit. Let's really see what's going to happen. Um, that I think is actually a really just interesting form of critique, and is also interesting from the point of view of even potentially of a of a of a student architectural project. You know, take a take something and critique it by showing how it could be used. Like take it at its own value, or take it at its own the thing that it promises to be, and then show what that the the, the darker implications of that. Um, I think that is a form of critique, and it's also quite interesting, and it also might reveal certain spatial or architectural possibilities too. Just going back to this impulse to escape suburbia mm -hmm. um, and see a kind of broader world, I read somewhere that you traveled through Europe with the poet Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> is that true? Uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I think revealing my, my age, uh, I, I, that's a super long um, uh, uh, story, but I guess the I have the to hear at version, least a bit of it, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, the short, the short <laughs> version is, uh, uh, I, had a, I had like, a, you know, kind of like your stereotypical inspiring teacher when I was a kid, um, who, he was my Latin teacher of all things, um, who got me into writing poetry. Um, and I just like, I, I tend to take to things very dramatically, so I really took to poetry and, and, and was writing tons of it. Um, and also, like, you know, to reveal kind of my future as a blogger, I got really into producing little, like, pamphlets of my own poetry. <laughs> so I was, like, a super pretentious kid. Um, but then my brother was studying at a school in Boulder, Colorado, where Allen Ginsberg, uh, if, and if you don't know who Allen Ginsberg is, he was, he was this, you know, the Beat Generation poet, et cetera. Um, but he was teaching at the Naropa Institute. Um, and I signed up for a poetry seminar, and you were able to just, like, choose one of the teachers, and, and you could, like, set up a one-on-one -on -one crit. And so I was just like, why on earth would you not do a one-on-one -on -one crit with Alan Ginsberg? Um, and so I met him and like, you know, gave him my poetry. And um, you know, as I say, I was really presumptuous and, and pretentious, uh, pretentious at the time. And I was like, hey man, like read my poetry if you like it. Maybe you can write an introduction and I'll put, you know, for my next book or whatever. <laughs> and um, I was like 17 or something at the time. Uh -huh. um, but then uh, to my surprise, you know, he was obviously just like, whatever, you know, I, I, I don't have time for this. Um, you know, but like, don't, don't, don't stop writing, but you know, there's no way that's gonna happen. And then, um, like the next day at an event, uh, I, I guess he read some of my poetry out loud and, and was like, is this guy here? And, but I, I, I was not. 
Um, and so people were like, oh, you must be so excited, like Alan read your poetry. Um, and so finally I found the guy, and to make a long story short, yeah, we just became friends. Like, and then I, and then I, I, I visited him in New York City. Um, my first trip to Europe was his last trip to Europe. Um, so we flew over for a book tour in, uh, at the very end of March 2000, or sorry, 1996. And um, it was nuts. You know, it was my first time in Europe, but like, you know, we met Jacques Chirac. We like, you know, it, it, was, it was totally crazy. And, um, you know, did poetry readings and stuff. Um, but we were friends for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, that's a, but that's a, not really connected to my architecture day. So that was like a different, different lifetime ago. <laughs> what, place does, um, what place does poetry have now in the kind of writing you do? Or is it, is it a thing of the past for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. I think that the, um, a poetic approach to thinking about how one describes things is, is very important. So um, just the actual craft of writing, I think, is still very important to me and making sure that um, you know, I describe things in ways that are vivid and, and rich, but also unexpected. Um, the actual form of poetry is not that important to me anymore. Um, Maybe that will change, but um, I'm just not too dr drawn to the idea of writing, literally writing in the typographic sense of how, what poetry looks like. Um, and then also I think that poetry too, just to go back to the larger theme of this conversation, um, you know, one can find things in poetry that are very architectural. Um, you know, the example I, I, I often give and have written about on Building Blog before um, is in the Aeneid, there's this amazing description uh, of an island uh, that's uh, where the, this king called Aeolus lives. And he's the god of winds. And he keeps all the winds of the world trapped inside these caverns, inside this hollow island. And if he ever wants to unleash a storm, he can just uh, you know, open up a gate and the wind will come out of, uh, in a certain direction from the island and it will you know, shipwreck people or cause storms or hurricanes. Um, but if you fast forward that you know, 2,000 years, that sounds like a, short, a science fiction short story or it sounds like a sort of bonkers student proposal at the Bartlett. Um, and yet at the same time is like in classic poetry seen as canonical in the Western tradition. And yet you can find these really exciting ideas. Same thing with like John Milton and Paradise Lost. There are these really amazing descriptions of um, geology and the earth that, are, that sound like something straight out of a, a, a particularly weird science fiction novel. Um, and so m m my response here is simply not that, you know, it, it may not be something that is important to me to write. But poetry is a resource for ideas, and poetry is a resource for architectural thinking, I, th I think is very real. And you can find um, really exciting stuff out there. I mean, in other words, I think ideas and cool examples of, uh, and things to research and rabbit holes to go down um, are all over the place. You know, they're, not, they're certainly not always only online, um, but they're also not always in your discipline. Um, you know, they, they can be, whether it's, you know, anthropology or poetry or crime, um, you know, these, these these, these, these things that might change your life can be found all over the place. And they're, they're as you mentioned earlier, hiding in plain sight. Um, and I think that if you look at the world through that point of view, I think it's a really invigorating and eye-opening one and can keep you enthusiastic. Um, I, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now getting old enough and I'm starting to think about you know, long-term health issues, but you know, hopefully like fight off dementia and that kind of thing, um, you know, because you remain supple and open-minded. Um, but I think that that way of thinking, I think is just really important. And that's one of the things that I think um, you know, building vlog to me was kind of a representation of that, like just a way of being open to ideas from different fields. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Cool. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I actually do have more questions, though, but <laughs> there's just one more. So that's kind of maybe where we'll cut it. But um, Lawrence Weschler is also mm. an influence of yours. And I just wonder if you could maybe introduce him as a writer to the group and uh, talk a little bit about what his writing means to you. 
Sure. Um, well, while you're in Los Angeles, uh, he has a great book about a museum in Culver City called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And um, it's a really exciting, very small uh, place where the installations and the text is a really uh, compelling sort of walking of the line between fiction and, and reality. And so it's never clear if what you're seeing on display and how it's being described is actually a real thing or if it's just sort of made up by the curators of this exhibition. And so it feels like somewhere between the, the traditional kind of European wonder cabinet and some sort of like postmodern prank, um, but yet uh, is, 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 is more interesting than I think I'm making it sound. Um, but so Lawrence Wessler has a, has a, a very short book, but a, a book about that museum. And um, it's definitely worth, you know, it's a nice stocking stuffer if you just are looking for a short book to read, maybe on the, on the flight back. But, um, but yeah, he's, he's also a great example, I think, of a, yeah, like a polymathic writer who um, is excited to explore things in, deep, in detail and in depth that are outside what you might expect a journalist to, to look into. Um, and so, you know, he's covered um, like sleight of hand magic. He's covered sort of outsider physics, you know, people with like deranged kind of tinfoil hat theories of what the universe really is. Um, he's obviously covered the art world. Uh, he has some great writing about Los Angeles in particular and about the quality and the nature of light in, in LA and how it's different from light elsewhere, at least in the United States. It turns out actually there's very small particles of silica from the beach that are in the atmosphere closer to the, to the sea. And so it catches the light in a kind of mineralogical way. And you can see it if you go toward the, um, the sea while you're here on a, a sunny afternoon. Um, there's almost like a white haze around objects. It's very subtle, but it's, it's quite beautiful. Um, and it's harder to see when you're, when you're, further, when you're this far inland. Um, but I've always just been drawn to those kinds of writers. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, like I've had the, uh, I guess I have had the temerity to get in touch with people who I admire. So I tend to write to people, send them emails, or even call them out of the blue and um, introduce myself. And so I also had the, the, the pleasure of, of becoming friends with, with, with Lawrence over time. So, um, which is also something I, I recommend, you know, don't, don't, don't downplay the, the, the value of getting in touch with people who you are interested in their work or you know potential mentors whether it's an architect or a writer or a filmmaker or whoever it might be a photographer or a musician um, you know they might also be excited to hear from people that are into their work um, but it's also just a great way to um, yeah I don't know kind of run things by people that you admire or at least at the very least like say that you met them before you know before you disappear from the earth but um, that's one a piece of advice I would I would give as well. Like don't don't be shy and and don't don't feel that the people you admire live in a different world because they don't. So we didn't talk about landscape futures, which is the exhibition you curated at the Nevada Museum of Art in 2011. Mm -hmm. But there was maybe this is where we'll end it. But um, there was this line um, where because you're looking at tools for interpreting landscape mm -hmm. and the way that landscape is being digitized. And there's this line about uh, devices of wonder that you had. Um, you're quoting the art historian Maria Stafford, mm -hmm. who's saying that these are machines that not only constrain what is possible to see, but also determine what can be thought. Mm. And I just have to say that for me, uh, building blog was that machine. Huh. So thanks again, Jeff. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by the Asphodels. 
Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Jeff Mayna and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Special thanks this week to Michael Maltzen for letting us use his office to record the conversation. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.